In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, the studio number, 310-441-0555. I wasn't here last week, so doing a little bit of catch-up with the books. So I'll be doing two books today. Uh, the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on Monday's show is The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, a short novel, novella that um, I've actually read before many years ago. And so wanted to read it again. Haven't um, read w- one of his books in a while. So The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. I'll discuss that Monday night. So getting to the first b- book for today is... The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. I've actually read one of his fiction books, The Fault in Our Stars, many years ago that was made into a movie. In this book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, he is giving um, reviews, like five-star reviews, on various parts of the human experience or things we might encounter. So even this word, the Anthropocene, what does that mean? Uh, We'll talk about different geological eras like the Jurassic era or um, I actually don't know that many of them to give you examples but different eras throughout history that sometimes will reflect certain things like the ice age or certain factors that make it feel separate or distinct and so geologists will separate time on earth in these different eras and so the, the Anthropocene is a newer one or the one that we are in right now it's in a way controversial not everyone accepts it as a official term but it's one that's been thrown around for quite some time now but it essentially represents the geological age we're currently in where humans have had a huge impact on uh, the world the climate the environment and everything that goes on around it so um, in the book he actually does talk at times topics that relate to things like how we affect the environment, but essentially he just goes through different things that are part of the human experience or things that we encounter, everything from Kentucky bluegrass and how it's such a common thing that we use. And even in that chapter, he does talk about how um, it is quite nice, that type of grass, but the amount of water and other waste that goes into maintaining lawns, something that wasn't always something that people had, uh, it is a sign of, of wealth, but that can be used better in other ways, those resources. So the reviews are kind of tongue-in-cheek. He does give a review, a five-star review at the end of each chapter, and there's quite a few of them, but the reviews themselves are less important than commentaries he makes throughout the book where he's discussing some thoughts about um, what's important about life, what's not important, the ways that we use our time and resources all in this, uh, again, kind of tongue-in-cheek way of um, discussing things. So you know, some of the t- titles are funny because it's things like sunsets. And so how do you review sunsets in a certain way? But he shares stories about interacting with his children in the, in those chapters. So it's not about sunsets only. It's about more than that. Um, 
I really enjoyed the book, you know, like these brief chapter type of books. Um, it's sometimes easier to read. That's some aspect of it, but they're also covering lots of different, uh, topics and that can make it interesting as well so again things like the plague is there so probably not a great review but he goes into the history so i enjoyed that too he clearly did his research into these different topics and shares um, his insights into them and the first chapter and actually i got recommended this book by a friend because of the first chapter he talks about uh, you'll never walk alone which is a song um, that originated first from a musical i think maybe close to 100 years ago, not quite that long, probably 70, 80 years ago, but has been covered by many people, including um, Frank Sinatra, Aretha Franklin, uh, and also, most notably, Jerry and the Pacemakers, which is what the chapter essentially comes down to. Um, the football team, Liverpool Football Club in England, they, the crowd, the fans, will ch sing this song before every home game, You'll Never Walk Alone. And so he... Um, talks about the history of that, how it became the song that the, the fans would sing a lot of the songs that were on the radio before the games, but this song really stuck. And the words are, are beautiful. He even says they're a bit trite. They're simple in a way, like keep, basically keeping your head up high, which is simple, but you know, also powerful. Um, but that theme of you'll never walk alone, as he shares, it's not, uh, it's about the good times and the bad times that you it's nice to have people to be with when things are bad and to still stick together and have that togetherness and that connection. But uh, it's also nice to have them when things are good to celebrate the good times as well. And so that song, I've actually had the great pleasure of being there at Anfield Stadium where Liverpool plays, where you have 50 plus thousand people singing the song all together. It's really a beautiful experience and so that's why a friend of mine recommended it to me because they knew I was a fan of that team and um, had recently been there I just was there recently and got to experience it again and so that's how I got the recommendation for this book so I clearly enjoyed that chapter and read it carefully and even looked at the notes on on that one um, but as I said he covers a whole host of other topics looking at how they might impact the world even for example there's a chapter on cnn and in that chapter he's of course reviewing cnn in a way but he's also talking about media and the ways that we get our media and the the good and the very bad of it so even things like how polarized the news is and how we're getting the the information in certain ways or even 24-hour news how that impacts what we're seeing and how much we're seeing and maybe we're seeing too much of, of certain things or being inundated with certain things. I appreciate it throughout the book. He shares very personal experiences or accounts that he goes through, things with his children, um, anxieties that he has himself that he's experienced throughout his life. So, again, although it's a book that's about these reviews, it's about much more than that, thinking about life in, in particular ways. What are the things that you you value? What are the things you want to dedicate your time to? Um, what are the moments that are special to you? For example, there was a chapter on whispering, and that was, you know, again, so whispering, how do you review that? But it was a very sweet chapter. He was talking about how he, uh, and I could relate to this because I'm someone who likes to be on time, and people around that around me know that, and sometimes could put a lot of pressure on that being on time, and there can be a stress about being on time. So, 
being punctual is definitely a good thing. I don't think anyone would argue about that. But the way he talked about it, I can relate to it that I could recognize in myself. There's some anxiety there of the of the fear of being late or the fear of other people if you're late or letting them down in certain ways. So it's not all just coming from a good place. But he was sharing a story of one of his young children. He had to, I think at that time they were two or three years old, get them to daycare or preschool um, and how they were kind of rushing. He was trying to rush them to get through things, but they were going very slow and asking lots of questions. And then he said at one point, he said, I have a secret that I have to tell you. And then, you know, the child whispered something to him. And I thought it was actually very sweet. He said, I can't tell you what my child said because it was a secret. So still valuing and giving that um, respect to the child that they wanted to tell them something in secret. But he realized that that was a thing that mattered is these these small moments, this moment of connection, that if we're focusing on rushing and being on time and stressing out about these kinds of things, we'll miss these important things in life, these moments where your child has something to say. So the whispering um, chapter is a lot about slowing down and recognizing the value of slowing down to enjoy people around you or the moments that are around you. And as I said, I resonated with that one because this sense we can have of rushing from one thing to the next. Even sometimes we have this feeling that wherever we are, we're thinking about the next thing we have to get to. Okay, well, this is in two hours and when do we leave for it or how do I prepare for it? And as I mentioned, I could relate to that because I sometimes can have that type of thinking and thought pattern about things and, and making use of time. But at times I've realized many of us are focusing so much on the next thing rather than enjoying the thing that is right in front of us. That what am I experiencing now? What can I get from the experience, the people around me um, in this moment, rather than focusing on what's next? And, and even I would say we do that not so much because we actually are stressed, but in a way of avoiding the moment, avoiding the intimacy of being in the space that we are currently in and having that experience. So. I thought it was very sweet sharing these types of moments that he has had and something that we can take note of. There is definitely a philosophy that runs through this book about what things we value. Also, when we're talking about the Anthropocene, looking at how human beings were affecting the world around us um, as far as climate goes. And I know climate change itself can be this controversial topic, but even the ways we, we treat animals and we um, also make many animals go extinct. When you look at the populations of animals, there's always some animals that will go extinct over time. That is just a natural progress of life. But we've also accelerated that in many ways. And so many animals go extinct because of human activity and what types of things to make money out of something or to sell certain forests or lands to um, make money from it in some way for the economy or to serve some people's pockets. But what are we giving up in the process? So um, I valued his insights and found myself resonating with a lot of it. His experiences of anxiety that he went through, even physical health ailments that he had, farming and gardening, things that he has done that he sees the value in. There was a lot in there that I think most people will enjoy um, in seeing his insights into these various factors. There's actually a a podcast that he has, I actually haven't listened to it with this same title, The Anthropocene Re Reviewed, whereas you got that motivation for the book. Um, but yeah, just really a, interesting book, bunch of short chapters that 
well-researched even the history of the book Monopoly, uh, the game Monopoly, which I thought was interesting because it's a game where one person gets all the money and other people pay the price. Um, and even the, in this game itself, it was invented by a woman, but then taken over or hijacked by other people who then made money off of it. And she has lost her recognition by most people of inventing the game. Um, but there's some irony there that the game Monopoly itself might reflect the negative of capitalism. And so we can see that even in the history of the game itself. So great book, really uh, interesting, insightful. As I said, for me, that first chapter on You'll Never Walk Alone was the one that drew me to the book, but really enjoyed reading it and recommending it to you as well. That was John Green, The Anthropocene Reviewed. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. back as i mentioned at the top of the show playing some catch-up so the second book that i'll be discussing today is the power of language by viorica marion the power of language how the codes we use to think speak and live transform our minds and i'd heard uh, viorica marion on a, a podcast and she was talking about language and topics that she discusses in the book and I found it really fascinating so I wanted to read this book and I was really intrigued by it. Um, she's a professor who at Northwestern uh, University studies um, bio, bilingualism a lot and psycholinguistics in general uh, and it was very insightful looking at some research of just what language is and, and you know that itself has some philosophical questions that it brings up but what is it how do we understand it, but also about bilingualism and multilingualism uh, and that research for me was important to read because uh, being myself someone bilingual much stronger in english than in persian but still growing up with that and working with lots of individuals who are um, bilingual or considering even let's say with their children should we talk to them in persian or only in english and i've heard for many years this um, what seemed to be established wisdom and knowledge that it's a it's not a good thing to talk to kids in more than one language because it will confuse them and it will hold them back and it won't let them advance but the research that she describes in this book shows that actually bilingualism is a a great plus to have for anyone really at any age but also for children so you should not be wary of um, talking to your children in more than one language, they, they'll be okay. And more than that, it actually will help them in some ways, which I'll, I'll discuss. So that was important for me because I've had that question asked before from parents of how, how should we deal with this? What should we do? What's of course also important is like much of the parent advice that we want to look at, there isn't just one way to do things in the sense that you have to do um, what's best for your family and your circumstances. So, for example, even when we look at talking, let's say, just using the bilingual Persian and English, if your English is really bad, not very good yourself as an individual, and you only talk to your child in English, you will be giving them exposure to less quality and even quantity of language. And that itself has a big impact in language development. So children being exposed to higher quality conversations and communications and higher quantity of words and time spent communicating 
that helps them develop language abilities. But if you yourself are not very good in a certain language and you think, well, I have to talk to my kid in this language uh, to help them, you actually might be holding them back in that way as well. So we have to be mindful of, of those things. Um, also, it's fascinating, and I'll get into some of this research and looking at how different languages can affect who we are or how we are and even what we remember. Uh, I'll share some of that. But before I do, uh, did want to share some of the insights she shares early in the book about some of the consequences of learning another language. And again, this doesn't have to be from childhood. It can be, but um, you can do it at any age. So he here's a really key one that I think is very important for all of us to keep in mind, that in older adults, multilingualism delays Alzheimer's and other types of dementia by four to six years and increases cognitive reserve. So that's pretty, that's huge. Four to six years that it can delay uh, the onset of Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. So I know people are often looking for ways to prevent that in themselves and their loved ones, but we can see that learning a new language or being bilingual can um, help in that domain, even to the extent similar to things like exercise and diet, the impacts that they have. So that to me was uh, quite interesting. Um, also in children, learning a second language means that they learn from an early age the connection between objects and their names and that that is arbitrary, which allows them to be more advanced in metacognitive processes and higher order, higher order reasoning. So just realizing that because you know two languages and the words are different for different things and that's arbitrary, that allows them to have some perspective on things that um, they wouldn't have without that. Also, there's research showing that knowing more than one language improves performance on executive function tasks. So that can be things like switching your attention or focusing your attention on certain things. So basically making it easier to focus on what is important and to ignore what is uh, irrelevant. And the thinking on that goes that if you know more than one language, when you're speaking one language, other words or those same words from the other language might come into your mind and you have to be able to ignore those and focus on the language you are currently speaking and that type of practice and experience makes you better at other skills that use that same type of strength. Um, also, research looking at creativity finds that people who know multiple languages are better at making connections between things and they score higher on tests of creativity and divergent thinking tasks. So again, the thinking here is that by knowing multiple languages, which sometimes we think of language as just, okay, if I know two different languages, I know two words for items. But what we actually find is that language within it is embedded with types of thinking or ways of thinking about things. It's not just words and translations for those words. Without knowing it, every language has certain perspectives on things um, certain ways of looking at things. And when you know more than one language, it helps you in making those types of connections. So uh, that, that was quite interesting for me. And, and throughout the book, she shares really fascinating research. For example, things like, um, in, in English, we don't have this, but in languages like Spanish, where nouns, things will have um, gender, right? So they'll have feminine or masculine, just, and it's pretty random. There isn't order to this. And what's fascinating is sometimes in different languages, the same item, the same noun, will 
have different genders. So if I remember it correctly in in Spanish and German, I forgot which one. I think in German, key was masculine, but in Spanish, key was feminine. Um, regardless if that's exactly right, but whatever one was masculine in that language, if they ask people, what are things that you think of when you think of a key, they would say things like in the masculine one, things like sturdy, hard, functional, and uh, made out of metal. Whereas when it was uh, feminine, they would think of words like delicate and uh, soft in a way because it's like it gets it fits into the, the place that it needs to. And those types of words that might be considered more feminine came to mind. So we can see that just because of the gender that's attributed to that noun, which is arbitrary, it affected the ways that people would actually think about that item, which is very interesting. Um, there's also research looking at memory and how it's impacted by language. And this is quite fascinating because it appears that the language that the memory was encoded in impacts how easily you retrieve that memory. So they call this the language-dependent memory phenomenon. So basically, if something happened to me and my family was speaking to me in Persian at that time, if I'm trying to recall that memory, I'll recall it better if I'm speaking Persian rather than if I'm speaking English. And this actually has huge implications for the work I do as a therapist, where if someone is sharing from their childhood and in their childhood they only spoke Persian, it'll be important for them to express those memories and what they went through in Persian because they have better access to the, the memories because that's when the language that they were exposed to and they encoded those. And then if you ask them to think of it in English, it'll likely be less emotional or less connected and they might remember less about what happened there. So I've often experienced this. I do have clients where um, I'll let them know I'll answer in English, but I want them to feel comfortable to speak Persian if they feel like that setup is okay for them. And if they're more comfortable in Persian to even, you know, if they can speak English, sometimes people say, well, my English is not bad and, and I can get that's the case. And that often happens here on the air where um, I have to be ready that people who will be speaking uh, in different, you know, English, even though that's not their um, strongest language or native language because of the show and, and that I have non-Persian speaking listeners, I keep it in English. I know it's not as easy for them possibly to discuss that. But when it comes to therapy, I want to give them that space and something for yourself to consider that um, it shows us the importance of having someone that can understand your language, that can understand what you're saying. She shares a quote from Nelson Mandela where he says, if you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his own language, that goes to his heart. So this way that our native tongue or the one we learned first or know the best, it hits us deeper, it goes deeper to us in an emotional sense, you've likely recognized that yourself. Now, what's also interesting is different languages are not just languages in a vacuum. They are related to the cultures where they come from. And so there's research looking at how if people are bilingual, at times different parts of their personality might come out related to the different languages. So if they're speaking, for example, Persian, they might have slightly different personality than when they're speaking English. And lots of factors play into this, such as when did you learn the languages, also how proficient you are in those languages and how 
um, comfortable you are speaking in them, but there do appear to be differences that we see in people based on the language, essentially bringing out different sides of, of themselves, of their personalities. And I could relate to that myself uh, as someone who's bilingual, first being exposed to the Persian language and then the English language, however, my English being far stronger than my Persian speaking. And I know that when I speak English, I can feel more assertive than when I speak Persian. And I could see multiple factors related to that. One being that, uh, of course, just not knowing a language as well, it's hard to be as assertive and confident when you're speaking a language you don't know so well. But also in the Persian culture, there's more of an emphasis of being polite and deferential and holding back a bit. So that also might play into that. But it's interesting to reflect on that. And for you, you probably can think of that too, that probably if you know more than one language, there are a variety of factors that will impact um, how it affects you in different ways, but you likely will be slightly different in how you act, behave, the things you say, the way you say them based on the language that you are speaking in. So uh, I thought that was really interesting, something I've thought about before, but she talked about research looking into this and seeing how um, people might act differently. For example, some collectivist cultures, like Asian cultures, also uh, Persian culture would fall into that, compared to English being associated more with individualistic cultures and how that might impact how someone might speak about things. So really interesting work um, about that, looking at how languages can impact us not again just in okay what are the words you use you use this word for that item or another word but can really impact the ways that we we think and as i was saying before the benefits of bilingualism or multilingualism knowing more than even two languages and how that can benefit benefit us in a variety of ways um, including helping us think about things uh, differently and that's something that i felt in myself that i really value being exposed to both Persian and English and knowing both of them at least to some degree, that at times it does, I think, contribute to my ability to think about things more flexibly, to recognize that uh, there's different ways uh, of looking at things, and that itself allows you to have some more perspective or make connections that you might not be able to make if you only knew one language. And this is why actually it can benefit us even to expose ourselves to different cultures and their ways of doing things, uh, a reminder that sometimes we think that the right way uh, is our way, and then we see other people living their lives, and at first it might seem a bit weird for us or even wrong, because culture is not just about um, doing things a certain way, it's doing things what we think is the right way. And we start to see there's an arbitrariness to the things that we might value or think are so significant that really it's, it's not the case. So it does give us a lot more perspective and it's something to definitely keep in mind. Um, she also talks about translation and how, you know, we talk about things getting lost in translation, how there really is a lot to unpack there, but we can understand that when you're translating, it's not just about translating each word and you've probably experienced that. Newer translation devices or technologies are better about this, but older ones were very bad about just translating word for word and then the total meaning would be lost because translation and interpretation is not just about um, switching the words, it's trying to capture the meaning and the feeling, which is much more difficult to do. But language includes not just the words, the words, uh, you know, there's the sum is greater than the parts in the sense that the meaning of it comes from how the things connect 
to each other and the feeling that's trying to be conveyed. And so she shares how difficult it is to be a translator, and that's usually used for written text. And then also she shares how difficult it is to be an interpreter, especially synchronous interpretation when you are interpreting what a person is saying while they're speaking, something like we see in the United Nations where as the speaker is talking, people are getting different translations in their headpieces, and those people are doing it simultaneously to the person speaking and how difficult that is to hold on to the the words that are being said and to be able to speak on them while you're still hearing what else is being said. And again, not just interpreting word for word, but being able to capture the meaning and the feeling that is there as well. So a really great book looking at the insights of how important language is, what it is, um, the real benefits of bilingualism, as I said, four to six years delaying the onset of, of dementia, Alzheimer's and other types of dementia is really considerable. And she also shared how there's research, and I've always thought this was such a firm truth that there's a strict window of when you can learn a language. But she shared that when more research has been done and they looked back at that old research, they're finding that it's less strict that only in childhood can you learn a new language, that you can get close to fluency or pretty fluent later in life. One thing that we do see is that because at birth every child uh, is born with the ability to create all the sounds from all the languages, but based on what they're exposed to and then what they practice, they, there's some pruning that happens and so they can't produce all the sounds over time. If you learn a language later in life, you're more likely to have an accent when you speak that language, but that can be okay. Uh, and a last thought about language and something to keep in mind. Even I've definitely been guilty of making fun of people when they can't speak a certain language. It's a thing that most uh, kids do with their parents. If we're, you know, you're a child of an immigrant, you tease your parents when they say words the wrong way or they say it with an accent. And I've definitely done that many times, uh, even, you know, done the accent and all of those things that, you know, happen with it. But one thing I try to keep in mind, I remember I was in Costa Rica a long time ago now. It was maybe uh, 15 years ago. And I was trying to communicate, and I knew almost no Spanish, and I was trying to use a book translation. There wasn't really even digital ones to use at that point or that I had access to. And I remembered really having such a hard time conveying anything and thinking, okay, I must sound so stupid to this person that I was talking to or these people that I talked to, uh, but I know I know much more. I just don't have the, the language proficiency in this language to convey it. And it was a very humbling experience and a reminder of uh, how difficult it can be for someone in a different language or a language that they're not very comfortable in to um, say what they have to say or to really express what they know and what they think and what they feel and to have more sympathy for that when people are speaking uh, a different language. And so a reminder that when people are struggling with a certain language that isn't their own, uh, in that moment it might feel like they don't know much or they are having a hard time, so maybe that means there's not a lot there, but one, um, that's not the case. They just don't have the words or the proficiency in that language. And two, the fact that this is like their second or third language and they know more languages is actually uh, showing their, their intelligence and their strength rather than a weakness. So a uh, reminder to myself and all of us to be more tolerant and respectful when we see someone might be struggling in the language we're speaking and that it doesn't mean they're not intelligent. It just means they don't have that proficiency in that language, which is something that we'd all experience if we're talking in a language that is not our preferred one. So again, the book was The Power of Language by Viorica Marion. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, um, hello. Hi, uh, thanks for calling. Thank you for having me on this. <laughs> sure. Should I just start telling my problem? Yeah, let's, let's we can get right into it. Let me know why you're calling. All right. Um, so I have, like, really bad anxiety. Um, and my anxiety has worsened a lot over the years, especially when it comes to being social and talking to strangers, stuff like that. Hmm. But these couple of months... Um, that has like went by um, has been the worst for me. I started like to have this constant fatigue where I like get really dizzy and I have really blurry sight and it starts to get so bad that I that it kind of darkens um, when I'm like when I'm in an anxiety triggering triggering situation like my sight kind of dark darkens. Um, my head is really foggy. Hmm. Um, it's kind of like I'm always on like cannabis you know but i'm not like abusing any drugs or anything like i, I don't i'm not on that at all mm -hmm. but it still feels like i'm on like you know cannabis and stuff like that um and it feels like like i'm on it like in a dream all the time mm -hmm. yeah now so yeah. you know what you're describing could be you know even i try to say something is psychological or if it's medical there's there's it's hard to even tease those things apart but what you're describing can be just from anxiety or caused by anxiety i would you know because of so much of the physical symptoms you described i don't know if you've seen a doctor about that recently to see if there's anything going on medically have you been checked out recently i have seen a doctor about it actually um okay. but they told me actually it kind of seemed like they don't know what it is okay <laughs> they just like put me on some uh, anti-anxiety medication and nothing really happened okay so yeah and, and you yeah. know you're working with doctors there and i you know the, as far as prescribing that's not something i can give a uh, advice on specifically i, I will say uh, anti-anxiety medications in general are for short-term use because uh, they can be very addictive and they can have more side effects often actually someone with uh, anxiety will be given it, they can people can get confused because we call them antidepressants but they can be um, helpful for people with anxiety and also it, it relates to how anxiety and depression we give them two different labels but they're very interconnected so that can be helpful but that's one route is of course the medication route i was just curious if you also have seen a doctor as far as any of the medical symptoms the physical symptoms you're experiencing as i said they align with what people with anxiety can experience but it can always be good to make sure there isn't any medical or physical ailment that might contribute to what you're feeling so that's one thing to consider but what as i said what you describe is often what people feel with anxiety even like you said that dream-like feeling sometimes we'll talk about depersonalization yeah. or derealization and so there's this way where you almost feel like you're out of your own experience or out of your own body and not fully experiencing it so um, we could think of that as a way of coping with feeling overwhelmed so if you're saying in these social situations you feel very anxious you're nervous uh, your body your brain is in a way checking out because it feels like it's it's too much but unfortunately what anxiety does is it can have this cascading effect where because um, you know when we're feeling more anxious then we're in the situation it makes us feel even more anxious and then it kind of creates this snowball that can be hard to stop so let's say if you have social anxiety 
and then you were feeling nervous, then you feel like, okay, it's hard to say anything. And now when you don't say anything, you feel even more nervous and feel uncomfortable that you haven't said anything. And it could be harder uh, to do something about it. The good news is it goes the other way too, that if we do some things and make our anxiety a little bit less, it, it can help us and then it can become easier, easier to deal with. Um, so you're saying the last few months, your anxiety and specifically, is it anything other than social situations or really it only shows up in social situations? Um, I actually um, didn't finish what, what I was about to tell you. Oh, sure. um, like the feeling of derealization and the feeling of um, blurriness and dizziness and fatigue, it's every day. I have mm. it when I wake up. I have it when I go to sleep again. It's every day, every hour, and I had it since this summer. And I don't know why, but these past summers have, has been like a blur for me, like these past months, I think, I'm hmm. to say. Um, and like, I can't control it. Like the feeling of this, it's like, I can't control myself and I'm kind of scared. Like, I feel like it's like a connection to my anxiety at that point, like where if I feel this dizziness and the things that I've just said, my anxiety gets triggered because I can't control myself. Does that make sense? Hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I just have this every day, and I just don't recognize myself at all. Like, I haven't been like this. It just started after I um, stopped my medicine. I was on citrulline. I don't know if you know that. Um, okay. Well, anytime we get off uh, of a medication, there could be you know, some kind of side effects or effects that we have from getting off of that. Now, it doesn't mean that's all that you're experiencing is coming from that. But um, yeah, I can get how what you're going through is very distressing. And you're saying it almost like you don't recognize yourself or your life or your experience because it's so different from what you had. And you're totally right that it could, you know, it snowballs into itself. As I was saying that when you feel anxious, then or, you know, we, we have anticipatory anxiety. Am I going to feel as anxious as I was? Or what if I start feeling that way again? And unfortunately, that makes it just more likely that we we feel that way. Um, what you're describing sounds obviously very intense. And I, I know you said you saw a doctor. I don't know. Have you seen a neurologist about any of the symptoms, things that you're experiencing? Um, no, actually, I have seen a psychiatrist about it, not a neurologist. Um, should I start seeing a neurologist and talk to them about it? Because I'm just thinking, like, what if it's physical and not like, psychological, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm you know, I can't say I know, but I think it would be worth getting some more testing or things done just to... Sometimes even at least it gives us that clarity that it isn't something physical, that it is an emotional or psychological type of thing. Or sometimes we find something and then, of course, can try to do something about that. So... A neurologist is one option, but just getting even more medical testing or clearing done to see what's going on. Um, yeah, you know, anxiety has. Yeah, go ahead. I'm so sorry. I That's just, okay. I just uh, what were you about to say? I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say about anxiety, like the physical symptoms, as I was mentioning before, um, it, it could be consistent with that. So there might not be. I think it's good to check if to see if there's anything medical going on that can help explain what you're going through. Um, but what you're describing, the physical symptoms of anxiety, all emotions, all psychological experiences have physical components to them. But anxiety can be a very intense, can have very intense physiological um, 
experiences. And it's actually one of the reasons why a medication that sometimes is used for some aspects of anxiety, especially things like performance anxiety, it's called beta blockers. And there's a class of drugs related to that, that what basically does is that some of the things like your heart rate going up or your blood pressure going up, you don't feel those things. And because of that, you feel less anxious because there's this feedback, as I was saying, we get. So, you know, you're in a situation, you think you feel a little bit nervous, you feel yourself sweating, you say, oh my gosh, I must be really nervous. And then it keeps getting worse from there. So some of the medications help block some of those physiological symptoms at some level so that we we don't feel as anxious in the moment but what you're describing mm -hmm. because it's so extreme i would highly recommend you to see you know doctors it's good that you saw psychiatrists that definitely makes sense and that's a line of um you know exploration that's important but also to see more medical doctors as you said is there something medical going on if so let's deal with it if not then we know it's not there let's really address this psychologically and see what we can do well, the funniest thing is, uh, is that I actually did like um, did some blood tests and stuff like that, um, and they were like a hundred percent healthy. Okay. Um, and when I like spoken with my psychiatrist, they just seemed, you know, like I was. It was like seemed, like looking at me like I was some kind of big question mark, and it's just. Um, do you know, like, if it's connected to anxiety, or like, if that's like a whole separate thing? I know I heard that you that I should start seeing a neurologist about it, but like, like, what do you think it is? Because lately I've just been like hearing that the thing that I'm, you know, experiencing is really unnormal, which I know it is, but like, it's just so frightening to hear that nobody know what knows what it is. Yeah. And, I don't, either, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I wish I had, know I don't, I can't say I know. Um, and even I, I said a neurologist as one type of doctor that can be helpful. And I'd want you to see even others as well, if you can, just to, to see what it is. It, it, it can be, you know, you're saying the psychiatrist who's uh, seeing you and knowing you, um, if they are really confused, then, you know, I don't know if I'm going to have an exact answer for you. That'll be better than that. What you're describing to me sounds like a very severe anxious response again if we rule out any kind of physical I'm sorry, symptom. A, a very severe one? anxiety experience like a, a, an anxiety disorder so th it could be something that's just the anxiety that you are you're having and it's becoming very severe and anxiety can get worse over time especially if it's untreated or if we have experiences that um, contribute to it not getting better so it could just be the anxiety but what you're describing is very extreme and that's why I'd want you to get even more testing it's kind of a um, not funny, but in a way, funny thing, you're getting these blood tests. You're almost hoping there's something there that might give you an answer, but hearing that it's all healthy, even though that sounds good in a way, it is not as relieving because you want to know what's this problem and trying to fix it. And you'd actually like yeah. to hear it's something. So I could get that. It's really frustrating what you're going through. You said it's been going on since this past summer, but before that, what were you going through related to depression and anxiety? Well, um, I was like fine before I started on Cetrilin, um, but then I started on it, and I don't think that I could. That it like suited me because I was getting really depressed and stuff like that, and my psychiatrist wasn't any help either, to be honest, um, and just said that I should should either stop on it or like uh, I don't know take it more until I you know can 
yeah, get mm. better. Um, but then I like stepped on it, and then it all started around like June and this summer. I've been like really, really depressed, and around August I um, experienced this fatigue nonstop. Mm. Um, Yes. Yeah. But like before that, I was like totally fine. So just... yeah, you know, some medications and and what you're we're taking is a antidepressant, but like one of the common ones, the SSRIs, and some people do have very bad reactions on them, um, and some people have very bad withdrawals from them. It's not necessarily common, but doesn't mean it's uncommon or not very difficult when people go through that. So it could be part of what you're experiencing. I don't know if you've looked up, and I don't want to tell you this is what you have, but um, um, SSRI withdrawal mm-hmm. syndrome, or I forgot what it's called, but there's a there's terms they use for that of what people go through when they get off of antidepressant medications. I'm just kind of scared if if it's like permanent or if I'm like yeah, um, I don't know, having a psychosis or something like that. Yeah, what what I'm you're describing is not. It doesn't sound like psychosis. I can get that when you're feeling that depersonalization or you're not so much in your own body or in your own experience it, it can be scary for people and feel like that um the thing is when you have anxiety we tend to worry about the things we're even worrying about so usually people who are having psychosis don't have that experience that you're describing but i can get that it's very you know uh, distressing and not comfortable and it seems like it's impacting you daily and even not daily um, moment to moment you know we're at a commercial break but i want us to continue the conversation and you know, telling me more about what you're going through, but also, as I was saying before all of this, what things were like, it seems like you think going on the antidepressants was a turning point for you and then getting off of the antidepressants. But after the break, we can go a little bit deeper into what you've gone through to see if we can get some more insight into what you might be experiencing. Right. Yeah, I can tell you about my family. We have some sicknesses in my family running. Okay. I can tell you about that. Maybe if there's like a connection. There could be, yeah, sure. Let's get into that after the break, okay? All right, perfect. Okay, all right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Um, so you, you wanted to get into some of your your family background and those things. I think that's important. Also, you know, you were talking about the symptoms you were going through, and um, they are some of the common symptoms people experience from withdrawing initially. Now, you're saying you've been experiencing it for now, I don't know, six, eight months. Um, but even the dizziness and nausea and some of those things are common withdrawing from antidepressants like um, the one you took, which is also called Zoloft. So, uh, you know, that part of it, it can happen, but go ahead. Um, I said you, you said it was common, like the withdrawal. Well, but common, but they'll say for a short amount of time when you're saying it's been, you know, so six to eight months of it, that's, that's not as common. Um, yeah. But, but many I'm people experience it initially common. for even a few days. Now, what can sometimes happen with things that we're anxious about is then, because we're worried about it happening, we can perpetuate it just from worrying about it coming back again. So, you know, that could be something there. But again, when you're talking about six to eight months of these symptoms, that's that's a long time. And as I was mentioning before the break, getting more into detail of it, is it something you experience on a daily basis? 
it's something I experience on a daily basis. Okay. From when I wake up to when I go to sleep, I have it right now. Oh. So what are you like, feeling right now? Just like when I look around, everything is dizzy. Like it's like I have like really bad, a really bad side. And I actually like been on to a um, what is it called a uh, a doctor for eyes <laughs> about it. Um, and uh, yeah, my eyes they look fine too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just feel unreal. Like I. Hmm. Like I've been the past eight months, I just felt really unreal. The yeah. only times that I've, like you know, felt alright and not having had these symptoms and stuff like that, was when I was on a class trip to Berlin, and I was like totally alright. But like when I went back again to where I live, everything was you know as I just described, hmm. fatigue and stuff like that. Yeah, well, maybe part of that could be, um, you know, our location, our brains are like a, more of a predicting machine than, than a thinking machine. So if you're back in the place where you experience something, unfortunately, it can make you, you know, more quickly go back to that way of feeling also. So that is a good thing that you were able to have that experience outside of it. It seems like um, not so long as far as all the time you're talking about, you've been feeling that. I hope you'll use that as a reminder. I know you were saying before the break, what if this is just like my life you know what if it doesn't go away that it doesn't seem like it's something that's fixed or permanent about you if you could have that experience where it wasn't there and that can give us some hope that it's not something that will never change or can never change so hold on to it that like sorry i was just like it was, it was like five months ago so. okay yeah well that's yeah, that was, that's yeah. and that's you know and, and something i try to be aware of actually in the one of the books i described today i remember now he was talking about something he was going through physically, um, a, a kind of illness, and just talking about pain and when we're, when we're in pain, how real it feels, and then how impossible it is for someone outside of that to know what that's like. So I can try to imagine what it's like, but I know I won't know what your experience is like and how difficult it is to day after day uh, feel this way. And, and of course, when it feels that way day after day, it's hard not to think this could be forever. Uh, I just will try to hold on to some of that hope for you that it, it hopefully won't be forever. It doesn't have to be, even if it's lasted for many months. Um, even when you were talking about the dizziness, again, I'm glad you saw an eye doctor. Also, you know, ear related to neurologists seeing that, you know, even what you're describing is rel- similar to when people talk about vertigo type symptoms too. So I would, again, not because I think it's for sure one of these things, but it could be good to rule out anything going on that's physiological so seeing a neurologist probably first but they might also encourage other types of doctors can you say that again vertigo yeah vertigo um not being a medical doctor i don't have the full description or way to describe it but it often from what i understand is related to the inner ear and things like balance are affected by our inner ears and then the fluids in the inner ear and things like that so vertigo can be very um uncomfortable people can feel very disoriented kind of like like they're on the you know dizziness and they're standing on the edge of a building kind of feeling like they can't keep their balance so it just again it could be that um but just good to rule out it might not be any of these things but the more we rule out at least we know what it's not hopefully we can find what it is um but that that can be you know something helpful so um 
I know you wanted to talk about your family a bit. If you'd like, we can talk about that. It might give us some insights. Likely it's not going to be that for sure. If we find out, you know, your parents were anxious, that's going to tell us that's what exactly you're going through. But yeah, I I do want to hear you were saying there's some illnesses in your family. Well, I want to tell you if it's relevant. I don't know. if Is it relevant? It definitely, I mean, it definitely is. It's not going to likely give us a clear answer. It might give us a sense. For example, I would just, you know, assume that there's some level of anxiety in your in your parents. I mean, everyone has anxiety, but that it might be more of an issue because anxiety definitely is genetic. But, you know, well, yeah, go ahead. The sicknesses, mental illnesses in my family is, like, wide because I have a mom that has PTSD and anxiety, and I have a sister that has, has some anxiety, too, and a brother that has, oh, God, it's a long list. Um, it's, like, ADHD, autism, uh, Kleinerfeld syndrome, uh, schizophrenia. <laughs> it's like the whole list. Hmm. Um, he's basically hand- handicapped, you can say. Um, and my father has like this, like kind of the same as my brother. I think like he he has like ex- like anxiety problems and PTSD and aggressions equ- equ- and stuff like that. Um, I just, I don't know if there's like a connection to all that. I'm, like, maybe, yeah. Because, I'm sorry? No, no, go ahead. Oh, um, well, like me, my sister, and my mom were like normal in the. Oh, sorry, how do you say that? Um, not like if we're normal, but like, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. We don't have like the same problems as my father and my brother, you know. It's mostly like anxiety and depression and stuff like that. Um, but um, I don't know if it's, you know, if I do have something else that's related to my brother and my father. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you know, what we understand about um, mental illness and genetics is that there's definitely a connection but what that means is not so clear in that okay if your parents have this you will definitely have this sometimes we know like certain percentages but it's not so clear so the fact that you have a good amount of mental illness in your family could predispose you or make it more likely that you'll have something and based on what you were saying you know yeah there's different levels of severity for sure and what your father and especially it seems like your brother is going through you see as more severe than what you and your mom experience um what you've experienced these last six eight months of course is more significant as far as how much it's been bothering you but even that still feels different than what you're describing now maybe having seen your brother who you said has schizophrenia and possibly him dealing with psychosis maybe made you even more vigilant about ways is that what i'm going through but from what i'm hearing from you it doesn't sound like psychosis i understand the depersonalization derealization it can feel like well am i out of touch with reality but really it's more what you're experiencing when it's depersonalization and derealization it's you're less connected to your own reality of experience rather than you are you know seeing things believing things hearing things that are not there unless you're telling me you feel like you've had those experiences Mm, i don't i don't think so well um, like a year ago, it was like New Year's Eve. I was 
smoking cannabis. And a week after that, I had this, felt like some kind of psychosis feeling, like I was um, seeing things and hearing things and stuff like that. It wasn't really, really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, that was like the first time I ever experienced someone somewhat like close to psychosis, I uh-huh. think. Um, like, does that like have something to do with that? Like, is, is there like a permanent damage from that? Because like a week after that happened, I was like, all right. Um, like, yeah. it was like a week after I smoked, like, I, I had this bad feeling, but like, after that, it was like fine. No, not, um, yeah, it doesn't, not likely any kind of permanent damage from, you know, I don't know how heavily if you ever used marijuana. Um, sometimes long term it can have some effects well it was like a once in a you know year thing yeah so that's not likely going to do that although I would say you know um, sometimes people when they talk about drugs like marijuana can blow things out of proportion as far as how harmful it is and you know be very against it and I think that's not good although there is some signs that if you have some predispositions to certain types of mental illness especially psychosis you might not want to use it as much especially in adolescence but even um, older it could be a little bit riskier so I would say it might not be the the best thing or something you might want to avoid just because um, it, it could make you more likely to experience some things that would be unpleasant and would scare you even more or could lead to something so not again that if you smoke it once you're damaging your brain in a permanent way but that especially with extensive use it could be something that you'd be more at risk for uh, it contributing to something so I would recommend that you avoid it if you can sometimes especially when you're anxious people turn to substances to help them deal with it you know we'll talk about self-medicating and generally that's not going to be a good way of, of dealing with that so if that urge comes up it would generally um, discourage you from going in that direction right. I will avoid it I haven't smoked it since okay. it yeah it seems like from what you described it hasn't been something you're um, using often but yeah no don't I wouldn't in any way think you've permanently damaged your brain I could get that what you've been going through these last six eight months it makes you feel like something is just wrong and unfortunately we don't know what that is exactly as I said it could be just anxiety which you're describing a very severe anxious experience it could be related to withdrawing you're saying it started shortly after that so it's hard not to make some connection there that withdrawing from the medication might have contributed to this it doesn't mean it was just that um, but that has contributed to what you're you're going through now let me ask you how much I would imagine a lot but how much is this impacting your life how are you functioning day to day you mentioned a class trip so I don't know if you're currently uh, studying and what you're studying but how are you functioning day to day because what you're describing sounds very debilitating well I'm in school um, and uh, I'm, well it does have a really big impact on my life it's really hard for me to function in like a normal day life mm-hmm like it kind of swings from day to day but like some days I can't even go outside like I can't go out the door because my anxiety is too bad 
And like, it's really weird. Like when I'm outside alone, it's like my head is telling me like, why are you scared? Like my body is, you know, out of balance, as you said before. Um, and like, yeah, it's really hard for me to function in my everyday life when I go to school and especially when I have like presentations and stuff like that. I have like a lot of, um, I don't know what it's called in English, but like when you don't like come to school, you, um, you know, I don't know what Sorry, I, I'm not sure if I can hear you. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to like uh, translate. Translate, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you heard the book I discussed earlier was about Absence. language. Absent. Oh, so sometimes you miss class because of that? Mm -hmm. I, well, I can get that, what you're describing. And look, everyone, most people get nervous before presentations. Um, but what you're describing when you're dealing with a lot of anxiety, then that can really get heightened. So I can get that. But have you still been able to function as far as like you're passing your classes, you're doing okay? Well, yeah, sometimes, but like early. Um, yeah. It's just hard to like, you know, see myself succeed school. Um, well, I can like, I can understand based on what you're saying that that would come up. I, you know, people go through really difficult times and come through them and come out of them. And so again, I'll give you some hope or I hope you can hold on to some of that that it doesn't mean this is what you're always going to experience or this is just you or your life but I can get that going through something for this long that is debilitating slowing you down uh, could really impact the ways you think about yourself and your future but I just want you to know I've seen so many people who felt they were at a place that would never change and things did so just hold on hold on to, to some of that um, we're getting close to another commercial break before we do if I may ask, how old are you and what is it that you're studying at this time? Well, um, I'm 19. Uh -huh. um, and it's really annoying that I'm experiencing this. I'm only 19. It's really, like, put a pause in my life. Um, but uh, I'm studying music currently at a uh, two-year um, education. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so even, you know, in talking to you and asking your age, there's a way that you're talking. I can feel like there's a downness that makes you sound older than you are, which is probably from the heaviness of what you're you're going through and how challenging it's been. So it's definitely slowed Do you down. What's that? Do I sound older than that? I think, well, as I was age. saying, there's a way that there's a heaviness in your voice because I think of what you're going through which can always make a sound a little bit slower in that way too, which can make it sound that way. So I, that was uh, something I, I usually ask earlier, but I realized I hadn't asked you, but that's what I mean when I say older is there some ways that um, when we're feeling, you're saying anxious, but also the depression that you're likely experiencing as a result of that will just make us sound a bit slower in our way of just acting in general. So that's kind of what I was alluding to there. Um, but let's go to another break, and I don't want to stop our conversation just yet because we've opened up a lot of things. So just hang on the line, and we'll talk a bit more after the commercial break, okay? All right, thank you. Sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back. 
before the break we were with a caller let's go back to them now caller are you still there yes i'm still here okay um so as i was saying i mentioned about a heaviness in your voice and this depression that i was feeling in you i don't know if you feel that you're depressed we, we talked about a lot about the anxiety but do you feel that you're depressed at this time i have suicidal thoughts so yes i am <laughs> okay yeah so that I mean, that's why i was saying about the slowing down feeling and the heaviness that is there and i can get what you're going through is really uh, very difficult and as you're saying this fear of it not even changing this thing this we somebody say, talk about a light at the end of the tunnel but right now it seems like mostly you're just seeing darkness around you and there's not a lot of that hope and that's why i'm trying to give you some of that hope because seeing so many people being in dark moments myself even when i've been in somewhere dark we know that unfortunately all we that comes to our mind is the darkness so that's why i'm trying to share that with you that what you're going through doesn't necessarily mean it's what you're always going to be going through and let's try to hold on to, to some of that i know that's very easy for me to say and might be much more difficult for you to hold on to than for me to say um but i i hope you'll continue going to the different doctors as i was saying to see what else might be going on because the the things that you're describing are very intense so you're saying the psychiatrist seems puzzled or or not sure about what you're what you're going through or saw you like a question mark but it could be worth seeing other doctors um as well tell me what is going on in your life socially or how are you connecting other people or are you connecting to other people well um let's go back in time to sure. uh, when i was a little younger um well i'm 19 um, and when i was like around 16 17 i was really really social and i had a lot of friends um i was always with friends every day and doing what i want to do um like then I started school again, and yeah, I was getting a lot of friends and stuff like that, but then New Year's Eve came, and um, all that with Citroën and stuff like that came, and then I just kind of cut all my contacts with my friends. Hmm. I still keep, like, a, a small amount of friends. Um, I do have a best friend um, that's, like, by my side all the time, and... Um, that's the only friend that I really have. Okay. So. When, and when you say you cut out all your friends, was it you didn't have the desire to see them? Was it the anxiety that you talked about? What made you want to cut them all out? Well, it was kind of like a mix. It was like the anxiety and the loss of energy Um that like kind of made me cut the contact with my friends. It was like the only person that I'm really comfortable around is like this best friend that I just talked about. And I just don't feel comfortable around other people anymore. Hmm. Kind of. Uh, okay. Yeah. So. Well, you know, when we're, when we're going through something very difficult, it's when we need people the most, but also what's tough is that not everyone is the right person to be there for us when we're going through something. So I'm sure there are others other than this best friend. I'm glad you have that person, but um, I, I get the sense that it's been hard for you to trust others or to want to open up 
to others about what you're going through. And so unfortunately, what you're experiencing is what a lot of people experience is that when they're feeling especially depressed, they withdraw from others, but that can make them feel more depressed over time. So just like the anxiety, unfortunately, that can build on itself, this depressed feeling can also do that. And so, you know, as I was talking about seeing other doctors really looking at this depression more closely is important too. You're saying you have a psychiatrist. Is this someone you meet with regularly? Well, I'm, I'm from Denmark and uh, the psychiatrists here never have time, really. Mm. I uh, see. Like, I have like a meeting with her once every three months. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like really regularly. I see. And sometimes it like changed the psychiatrist too. So like it's different psychiatrist every time. Yeah, well that's, that could be unfortunate because a big part of uh, any kind of care, but especially mental health care, is building a relationship. And so, what you're describing is, well, if they switch them, then that, oh, of course, makes it difficult. I'm not here, like, to speak about her. I can't really hear you. Oh, you can't hear me very well. Okay, I'm not sure. It sounds clear on our end, but I'll try to speak even louder if I can. Um, but what I was going to say is, in mental health care, it's so important to build a relationship with whoever you're you're seeing, and what you're describing makes that very difficult. Both from, well, if they switch the person even more, and then seeing them so not regularly have you gone to therapy during this time or have you ever gone to therapy i have gone to therapy but i I was like a teenager like really young okay um i haven't seen a therapist since um yeah well i've been like to some anxiety groups and stuff like that um but that's like it's okay well if you find that helpful i'd continue the groups but i'd also encourage you to to consider going to individual therapy that can also be helpful in your process of what you're going through yeah but like it's like when i'm in like a therapy session i just my anxiety kind of takes over like Hmm. you can't understand or concentrate about what they're saying it's really a dead end kind of right now it feels like you know yeah, I mean, I could get that it might even feel like a burden to talk to someone or um, you're saying it might even make you more anxious or it takes over. And the experience of therapy, we often think, well, the therapist is going to tell me how to fix my problems. But often it's more about the space that they give you to just go through whatever you're going through and guiding you through that. So I would encourage you to think about that. You definitely would want to find someone that has experience with anxiety and depression the things that you're going through i don't know exactly what it's like finding a therapist in denmark but it's something to consider can you look into that some more what you're dealing with is very big you know it's not something small and likely it's going to take lots of things to help you not just one thing is going to be the solution so i'm just sharing with you different thoughts of what might be helpful thank you um well i had like a plan um I'm like on some new medication right now. Uh, it's called Escitalopram, um, and I don't know America. It's called Lexapro, I think. Okay. Um, I'm on like that right now, but I don't think that suits me either. Um, but anyways, my plan was like to start on new medication um, to like kind of linger the anxiety, and when I you know, am to like these therapy sessions, I can finally like concentrate and, you know, 
and taking like what they're saying to me, you know. That and yeah. It was, like, yeah, that that could that sound that plan definitely will make sense and hopefully it it it, yeah. it pans out the way you're describing it. And let me ask you when you say you're starting the new medication, the Lexapro, how long have you been on that? Well, that was I started like around November, um late November. Late November, so okay. So, uh probably we're getting close to maybe 2 months or so, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. or maybe a little over two months uh, you know sometimes they'll say with the antidepressants they'll take about six weeks to show their effect too so you're a little bit past that but close to that so it's something to you know keep in mind it, if you do continue that for a while I know it seems like you're saying it hasn't helped too much um, but you know if you're doing it and trying it it might be worth with continuing on that I still would encourage you to start therapy as soon as you can even you know, not f- focusing too much on am I getting so much out of it or do I know I'm getting what they're telling me or if I can focus because, um, you know, when I'm working with the client, what I want from or what I hope that they'll feel comfortable to do is just be however they are. So sometimes they might be in a really low mood and not want to talk much or they might be anxious and we'll share that and that's okay. It's just having that space for it. So I, I hope you will consider that as well along with also if you can see a neurologist or other medical doctors that can screen to see what else might be going on, I would encourage that too. Okay. Well, I will. Um, yeah, I will think about it. Yeah, I mean, I hope you'll you know try that out, try those different things. A, a book came to my mind as we were talking because of what you're going through and being in this low space that I read recently. Um, it's called A Therapeutic Journey by Alan. De Botton, so that's B-O-T-T-O-N, and the title of the book again is A Therapeutic Journey. He shares the experience of going into a darker place and having a dark time and things that can help us get through it or get out of it in a very, I felt like, very real way. It wasn't just this um, overly optimistic way because sometimes we get that when we're feeling down. Even I might have been guilty of that in our conversation today when I talk about holding on to hope but this way that oh things will get better everything's gonna be fine Um, I do have hope for you that things will get better but I can understand it's much more complex than that and sometimes hearing that it can it depends sometimes it feels comforting sometimes it doesn't but that book might feel relevant to what you're going through so that's just something I would recommend all right well I will look into it okay um, wishing you the best in that. I, as I said, hope you'll continue doing the things that you can to help yourself. And as I was saying before, I've seen many people in incredibly dark places in their life that came out of it. And at 19 years of age, there's no reason for us to think this is just what the rest of your experience is going to be at all. So I know it's been six, eight months of this kind of feeling and that can feel like, well, that why would I expect it to change? But just letting you know, this does not have to be the way yeah, you're going to feel even in a short amount of time, but especially not for the rest of your life. Um, it's just so unfair that, you know, eight months of my life has, like, just been taken away like yeah. that. You know, you should, like, enjoy your, you know, teenagehood and stuff like that, but I wasn't allowed to kind of... Yeah. Uh, no, I agree with you. That, that definitely... Um, 
going through illnesses, whether we think of them as physical, medical, mental, whatever it is, you know, it's hard to have like a, a rhyme or reason or a fairness there. It doesn't sound fair at all for you to have to go through what you're going through. And I'm sure you're seeing people around you that aren't going through that and thinking just it feels simple just to wish you don't have this feeling, but it's not simple at all because it's been part of your experience day after day. So I agree with you that it, uh, it, it doesn't feel fair. And that's why we're going to try everything we can to give yourself what you want, which is just not to feel this way and to feel better. Um, and often through that darkness, we come out of that other side even stronger than we were before. I know that even sounds like this optimistic way of looking at it, but it can be the reality for many people. So what you're describing is totally true. It doesn't feel fair at all that you've had to go through this. These are the years you'd want to enjoy. Um, but my hope is that you will feel better and you'll still have many more years to enjoy after that. And yes, this time we can't get back, but seeing what we can make with the time you then do have going forward. So I, I do hope it it does change for you. I know change like this usually takes some time, but I'm hopeful that you will hold on to that hope that this doesn't have to be what you experience the rest of your life. Thank you. Um, I actually do have a last question. Um, sure. It's about, uh, well, psychiatrists and doctors in Denmark, like, they don't take these things really seriously in mental health and stuff like that. Like, do you have advice to like what I can tell them to like, like make me as a like take me seriously? Because like I've told them that I even have suicidal thoughts and stuff like that, and they're just like, well, there's not much we can do right now. Hmm. Well, yeah, I don't know. So That's like, unfortunate. To anytime we feel like our pain is not being taken, well, if we're not. We feel like we're not taken seriously that's not pleasant but especially when it's our pain that can feel even worse so um i don't know you know i know that in uh, denmark there have much better ways of taking care of most people but maybe there's certain types of care that it's harder to find or it's harder to get like you're describing um you know just it, it's hard because yeah people sometimes will undermine Mental things are harder to see. So if someone has a broken bone, they say, oh, look at the x-ray. It's very clear there's a broken bone. But when you say, I'm feeling the ways that you're describing, it's like, oh, well, it's it's in your head or, you know, how bad is it? Or maybe you think it's worse than it is. And you're the one that knows how painful the pain is. And, and really, you're the one that can uh, attest to that. And unfortunately, um, you say they're not taking it seriously. I, I would just share, you know, that you've tried the different things and that you're feeling this way. And um, I don't want you to have to say, you know, you're saying genuinely have these suicidal thoughts, uh, but to share that with them in a genuine way, that's really what I'm going through. I'm not saying it to get attention. Really, it's that dark. It's that painful for me. You know, there's no way I wish there's a way I can tell you say this and they'll definitely take it more seriously. If you think they're not uh, often, unfortunately, like you're saying, if you only get to see them every three months, they can sometimes look at it as like, okay, let's just get through this appointment and get to the next one rather than giving you the the actual care that you need which can be more than that and more in depth than that we also see that here in the united states often where doctors are seeing so many patients and they have to just go through each one quickly and often psychiatrists see patients even 15 minutes and are just trying to give them some quick update and then moving on so uh, it's unfortunate that you know therapists tend to be more aware of that i don't know again how it is in denmark um, and how a therapist would respond to what you're describing 
but their focus is on the mental pain, the emotional pain. And so hopefully they would take it more seriously and also not just about taking it seriously, giving you some help and support as well. So as I was saying before, even if you feel that you go to a therapist and right now it's hard for you to even like talk or describe what you're going through, I felt like with me you were able to share a lot. So it seems like you can do that. Um, I still would encourage you to go if you can find a way to see a therapist just because that's a place where it's only about the emotional pain or the focus is on that. And if that's what you're going through the most, that, that could be a place where you'll have at least more space for that. Right. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. I appreciate you calling. I'm sorry you're going through what you're going through. And as I said, I do have hope that it will get better. And I hope you'll hold on to that hope yourself. Thank you very much. Oh, um, last question. Uh, mm-hmm. You just like said some really important things, like in this, in what you call it. Um, like, where can I watch it? Do you have like yeah? So media? sure. So the show will be uploaded um, soon. Well, it'll be on the Radio Hamra app, I think, very soon. But also, I upload it to my SoundCloud page and then podcast on. Apple Podcasts and on Spotify and that'll likely be by tonight Los Angeles time so yeah I know we talked about a lot of things if you want to go back and listen to any of it you could go ahead and do that probably by tonight so you can just search my name and you'll be able to find it what's your name again? (laughs) Dr. Fadir Tolakwi and so if you look in session with Dr. Fadir Tolakwi you'll be able to find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts how do I wait wait how do I um Right. How, how, how that you know what? Why don't we? Because we're at a commercial break. Just hold on the line. I'll tell you, the, the, give you those details over the phone, and then yeah, we'll we'll, we'll go to a commercial break now. Okay, just hang on the line. After the commercial break. No, you just hang on the line. I'm going to tell you on, during the commercial break. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. back let's go to another caller radio habra you're on the air hi how are you good thank you thanks for calling thank you for having me thank you for the show sure. i have a question please okay i have a son and so he's like uh eight and a half years old and she goes he goes to school mm-hmm. and he has a couple of friends and, uh, you know, last year he had, like, they were a big group play together, like maybe six people. And this year they are three. But the, the three, my son, one girl, and the other boy. The other boy is a big boy. You know, the body is big. Huh. Oh, big. And taller than the age, you know. And uh, he just, uh, I think he just bullied my son because... Uh, uh, my son said to me one day, uh, no to the papa. I said, what do you mean no to the papa? He said, uh, that big guy said no to the papa. Basically, he's selling don't, <laughs> he's a papa or something. Anyway. Maybe I'm not sure, not that it, maybe the detail matters that much, but he's saying to say no to your papa, like say no to your dad? No, no, no. no. The, big guy, the big boy said to my son, I don't know what did he, my son said, 
and he 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 was uh, telling my son no to the papa. Basically, the big guy thinks he's the papa. Okay. And then the other thing is like, my son listened to him a lot, and uh, for example, one day, uh, you know, he said, "Oh, that uh, big guy doesn't like me to, you know." do this or do that so I don't do this I don't do that or the other day because I said do this for example go hug your mom and I saw that he came and hugged me and I said what happened he said oh the big guy said but I didn't like it but the big guy said hmm. anyway I don't know what should I do you know yeah well it, it seems like from what you know you're, you're calling it, it is like a type of bullying but it seems like your son like sees him as his friend so he's or, or likes him in a way and so he's trying to listen to him but you feel like this bigger kid he's bigger physically than him same age from what no, you're saying I, I think you know it's kind of bullying sure because he, he's he's the boss he, the big guy think he's the boss yeah yeah I as I was saying say, yeah listen, right that, that's problem right no no and as i said i could see what you're saying it's a type of bullying there's some type of bullying where someone who's not someone's friend comes and says means things or physically does things to them but in this one it seems like your son thinks of him as his friend right i mean if you ask your son yeah he's a friend because they play together right you know yeah and so that's what i'm saying it's a you know it's a slightly different dynamic than some types it doesn't mean it's not something uh, that you want to change or that's good for him because i think what you're worried about is your son is just you know listening to this kid it doesn't matter even he's saying hug you that sounds very nice it's not about the things even he's saying to do some of them maybe are even good things but it's this way of that he's listening to that him or feeling like he will just do whatever he says without yeah. thinking about it for himself so i can understand that that's concerning for you now how does your son talk about it does he say he doesn't like it or he is worried about it what does he say himself no he they are friends you know because yeah. they play the group of three the girl my son and the big guy they they are friends they just mm -hmm. play together at the school you know uh but not outside the school just at the school you know races they play together okay uh, that's it but they don't sit next to each other too at the school but you know the thing is that because he he think he's the boss, the big guy, mm -hmm. and whatever say my son should listen, and my son is kind of thing. Yeah, he he should listen to him, you know. Yeah. Even he doesn't like it. That that's why I. What should I do? I don't. Well, you know, it's I mean, it, it's not going to be something we can just change this dynamic so quickly, and also we can't control it to say, for example, don't be friends with him. But I think it's important to have conversations with your son about things like friends and friendship and also you know how friends and people that care about each other they don't make people do something or tell them they have to do something we give each other space to do what they want to do and so if someone is telling you what to do that's not something that a, a friend should do or would do so uh, you know i wouldn't want you to focus so specifically on saying stop being friends with this person or changing this but it could be something to think about how you talk to him and also then we have to think of how do we deal with him in general because um, parents often they want their kids to do certain things and we might tell them to do certain things but we also have to realize that the more we tell them what to do the less we're 
encouraging them to think for themselves and to to challenge a situation like this you know so sometimes i work with uh, families and they'll say i want my kid to even be able to stand up to the teacher if the teacher does something they don't like and what i always ask them is do you do you think your son or your daughter feels comfortable standing up to you because that's a way that we show them that you can challenge authority or question it if you don't agree with it so let me ask you that question how easy do you think it is for your son to disagree with you or to tell you he doesn't like what you're saying or to just stand up to you how easy or how much do you see him doing that no he usually it's the saying that to me but i don't know how come to that friend yeah just listen to him okay and then he thinks he's a boss yeah. And, you know, well, that's good that he can feel comfortable to say that to you and to, to share his opinion. Often, even, you know, any age, we, oh, we talk no, about. No, he, 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 that, you know, he usually does not, uh, does not share the opinion until, you know, something comes up and I ask him, you know. Yeah. And so that's what I mean is we can also keep that in mind, encouraging him to to share what he thinks and and even if he disagrees with you you can you don't have to say i agree with you but making it okay for him to disagree in general that okay i want this and you want that okay that's that's okay that we don't want the same thing we can still respect each other and i still want you to to do what you want to do or to listen to yourself so overall encouraging him to uh focus on himself now at school kids really can care a lot about what the other kids think and what they want from them and he wants this kid to like him and you're saying he's physically bigger and we see this in adults too that were impacted by physical appearance and physical size but of course in kids it's going to be even more where they're like okay this is the big kid maybe i'm supposed to listen to him but we're trying to help him learn that he never has to just listen to someone um, if he doesn't agree or he never has to allow someone to make the decisions for him he can think for himself and so I would consider how do we encourage him to do that in general. It's hard for us to just say, don't listen to this kid or you don't have to listen to him. You can talk to him about those things, but it might not change that. Now, do you ever ask him, like, why do you listen to him or what makes you listen to this kid? You know, that I don't know now. Okay. Well, I would... But, but I, yeah. you shouldn't listen to the kids, whatever he said. No, you shouldn't. If you... Don't like hug me when I came to the school. You shouldn't hug me, you know. That's that's because true. I, like I agree with you in that. But as I was saying, rather than just saying like don't do this or you shouldn't do this, I I encourage you to have conversations with him about the situation. So okay, so he told you to hug. That's so nice. You you hugged me. But I'm wondering what what makes you listen to him that he says what he says you you have to do. So try to ask him questions, not in a way to make him feel really bad about it, but to try to understand it better. Or it might open up places to talk about it some more where he says, oh, well, he's he's bigger than me. And then maybe it's like, well, do you think you're afraid of him? Or, you know, you think because he's bigger, he knows better. Or it just might open up the space to have conversations with him about what is mm -hmm. going on. Um, so I'd want you to, you know, just talk to him in a, in a calm way. So not in a, you have to change this, stop this, don't be that way. Because if you make it very stressful, then it's more likely to make your son close off. But if it's just... A calm conversation about let me understand more okay so you're saying he told you to hug me what makes you listen to him you know just a way of just giving him some space to tell yeah. you what what he's going through yeah but the other thing is that uh, 
you know, usually he just uh, don't talk about the school to me. So okay. what should I do that she come and, you know, share what happened, we, what the friends said? Yeah, well, well, we, we can I never, do? yeah, we can never force someone, what, even if they're our own child and at whatever age, to talk to us. All we can try to do is make it easier for them to talk to us, to make it less difficult. So as I'm, you know, I know you're probably very worried about this, but even in hearing your voice, I feel this anxiety and worry about it and so if you ask him what happened at school and he feels distress in your voice he's less likely to tell you something bad that happens because he thinks you're already going to be worried or make it a big deal but the more calm way you can the more calm you can be when you ask him about things the more likely is to open up but we can't say you know there's no secret question that if you ask it in this way he'll definitely open up to you all we can do over time is try to make it easier for someone to open up to us but we can't How make it easier? as I was saying respond with more calmness if he says something don't push too much don't try to ask too many questions don't react too strongly if he says something is going on because that's more likely to make him um, close off and not make it easier for him to open up you know we are at the end of the show and unfortunately we didn't have a lot of time maybe we can have more time at another time but those are just some thoughts about the situation should i go there talk to the school about it that's something i would talk to your son about it before you do i generally think that's a good thing so you don't just go without telling him and then he finds out something happened again i really do have to end the show i'm sorry i know this is something you're very concerned about but i can't continue due just to the timing but maybe we'll have another time to talk soon Okay, thank you, sir. You're welcome. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Big thank you to Farhuda here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi.